Thank you for listening to the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. This unedited audio is taken from What the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry Can Teach Skeptics About White Supremacy by Kevin Synapathy and first broadcast live on the 2nd of July 2020. A video recording of this and many other talks hosted by Skeptics in the Pub Online are still available on our YouTube channel. We hope you enjoy this podcast and thank you for your support. All right. Thank you so much to Skeptics in the Pub Online team uh, for inviting me to speak today. I'm coming to you from Madison, Wisconsin, which is in the Midwestern United States. You might be familiar with it. Otherwise, it's about two hours north of Chicago, if that means anything to you. And today I am drinking a Diet Coke out of my Psy Moms mug. So um, I look forward to hearing what everyone else is having. There aren't a whole lot of silver linings to the COVID crisis. So if anything, opportunities like this to connect with each other without registering for a conference and booking a flight is quite nice. So let's get to it. I have the utmost confidence in the tech skills uh, of the folks behind the scenes, and I've been promised that I'll be alerted immediately if something goes wrong on my end. But it is new for me to give a talk and not receive any live audience feedback, but I think that those of us who regularly do any sort of public speaking might as well get used to it. So here I go. When Alice invited me, I initially thought I'd give my talk on the overblown breast is best mantra, which I presented at SciCon in 2019. And I figured that you can see it on YouTube. I also considered doing my talk on vaccines and the misinformation Hydra, which I was to present in Rome at the Aspen Global Conference on Scientific Thinking and Action in April of this year. But of course that didn't happen and it's not happening for a while. So I decided to go ahead and do this talk at this year's Secular Student Alliance virtual conference, which is at the end of this month actually now. And it's great because you're all invited and it's free to attend. And there are quite a a good good, uh, lineup of speakers. So in a nutshell, that talk is gonna be about the science and the science communication around vaccines and why uh, people who call themselves science communicators regularly describe their jobs as a game of whack-a-mole. So anyhow, when Alice mentioned that there was interest uh, among skeptics about my experience with CFI and CSI, I thought that this is a core lesson for skeptics. It's hugely relevant to skepticism, and it's integral to the anti-vaccine movement, alternative medicine, and so many other issues that skeptics tend to be interested in. So I've been studying the roles of communication and social injustice and inequality in the spheres of science, health, food, and chemical exposure, among other things, for the past handful of years. And at the same time, uh, I've gleaned observations from my experiences with organizations and individuals in positions of power within those spheres. So naturally, I write about these experiences. I know some of you who have been following me for a while know my history with the entity that is GMO. And I put that in quotes for a whole lot of reasons that I can't possibly get into today. 
And also the polarization around that entity, which is a behemoth of a thing, really. And it's one that I'll be covering in more detail in an upcoming project. But you can read this essay at Undark and also the Slate essay that led to that Undark story, if you like. I've linked them in the slides here, um, and I think that the skeptics and the pub online team will be making those available to you as a PDF, actually. So the focus of today's talk is about skeptics and white supremacy, and Undark was also the right place for this essay on uh, CFI and CSI and why the skeptics movement can't afford to ignore racial inequality. So I'll get to that in a few minutes, but first I'll explain some of the backstory. This will be a bit U.S. centric, and as a born and raised American, I mean, I'm just going to go ahead and apologize for us, but also I guess we gave you Beyonce, so does that make up for some of it? I guess you can let me know. Zoom later. But really, I hope you'll see the relevance to the UK and to the global skeptical scene also. I really do think that the lessons that I'm going to share here today um, are universal. I also want to state up front that I know many of you in the audience today have been yelling about racism and other pseudoscientific bigotry in the skeptics movement, including people who have uh, formerly been through the ringer with CFI, CSI, and its leadership. Some of you have understandably washed your hands of them, and others are still doing the work on the inside. And I want to make clear that I see you and that I appreciate you. You're all over the world um, and in the United States. Uh, there, there are plenty of great skeptics here, and a few of you are my friends and my colleagues, and I'm sure several of you are here today, so a special toast. So while I'll talk about some data in general, um, this isn't a talk about the peer-reviewed literature on race and racism and white supremacy. And it's not about the peer-reviewed literature on um, marginalized communities. Data and facts are, of course, important when it comes to white supremacy, and it's certainly of utmost importance. Um, it is for me, especially when I'm doing straight-up science writing. But I really think that over intellectualization, excuse me, um, allows people to take the humanity and suffering of real human people out of the dialogue. And that's not how <laughs> I roll for a talk like this one. At the same time, I don't purport to speak for people of color on the whole. I'm still learning myself and I'm never done learning and I, I can only speak from my own perspective. And while I'm going to be critical in my analysis of uh, CFI and CSI, I highly respect several of the people still involved with the organization. Um, and as for the skeptics movement, it's been really encouraging to see such well-rounded skeptical people and organizations doing their part um, around the world uh, in the US and globally. And I'm proud to be part of some of that work. So we will dive right into the lessons that skeptics can take from the Center for Inquiry and the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry in just a moment. So first, a quick overview of how I got into the skeptics movement. This is me and my dad, and I'm poking a little bit of fun, but he's, uh, he's a great dad and grandfather as well. But so certain folks, you know them, the kind of guys who love logic, but they're 
really engaging in no such thing, they often come at me with all of the the trappings of calm, rational discourse, suggesting that I should stick to writing about science rather than air my grievances. And I've learned that these antics serve to shut people up and uphold the status quo. So whatever, I'm going to go ahead and continue to say what I want to say. Um, Obviously, it's always been a very important time to do that, and this is as important a time as ever. So in a nutshell, I was raised atheist from birth uh, by immigrants from India. And my father is a scientist and a quite vocal atheist, and so I always valued science. I was also inherently a dark and terrified child, and I can say that sometimes while laughing at myself, but it's true. I was one of those atheist kids who desperately longed for gods in the afterlife and ghosts even to be real. And also, I loved watching infomercials and shopping networks on TV, and I truly wanted all of their preposterous claims to be true, um, and I believed a lot of them. As a teenager in the late 90s, although I was aware peripherally of the skeptics movement, I was rather ambivalent about it. In the U.S., especially, skepticism is highly intertwined with atheism. And I was just starting to get past my phase of contempt for religious people. And I was fully over that phase by the age of 17 or so. So I was well ahead of some of those baby boomer atheists who clearly are still not over being full of themselves and their ostensibly gargantuan intellect. I kid a little bit. There are plenty of baby boomer atheists who I care for very much and respect very much. But in my 20s, given the heaps of privilege I was born with um, and also some ongoing struggles with mental health since childhood, I'd sort of languished after college and I worked a job that was fulfilling enough but really without any real meaning, all while dwelling on a sort of existential dread. That all changed for me in 2011. That's when my daughter was born. And that's also when I developed a full-blown case of postpartum OCD. So for me, postpartum OCD was a barrage of constant waves of really explicit and vivid fear of something bad happening to my baby And then constant compulsive actions to temporarily appease the terror. And I could could spend a long time getting into that, and I have. And you can read about it if you're interesting. But uh, long story kind of short, combined with all of the spurious information in the parenting zeitgeist, the deep anxiety and fear debilitated me. And the pressure to breastfeed was also overwhelming. So I also became obsessed with my breastfeeding success, which I achieved with both of my babies. But I would later write extensively about the costs of that decision for me and millions of other parents. Now, it would be an understatement to say that I was overwhelmed. I lived this way for a few months and I put my spouse through it too. And I I really appreciate him for all of the support. But then I realized that this can't be right, the way that I was living. And I would later learn how very wrong so much of this was. So the skeptics were like a beacon out of the darkness for me. 
So I found the skeptics movement and I spent the next two years digging out of the worst of mental illness and raising my daughter and reading everything I could to figure out how to do evidence-based parenting and also just evidence-based worldviews and living. So I would breastfeed my baby with one hand and hold my phone in the other hand and I would read skeptical content. And then I started digging into peer-reviewed scientific literature to piece together how to figure out what to worry about as a parent, as a woman, and generally a person who was upset that I'd be been sort of duped into living in a nebulous but constant state of fear. And it was heartbreaking to learn that people were being misled into being afraid that medicine and vaccines and like fruits and vegetables were going to hurt their kids. It was so sad to learn that parents were afraid and distrustful of doctors, um, which of course is uh, for not unjustified reasons, but they were so afraid that some at high risk for complications would avoid beneficial and safe interventions like testing for gestational diabetes or antibiotics for group B strep. And it was sad to learn that those at increased risk for postpartum psychiatric conditions would rather eat their own placenta than seek evidence-based psychiatric care. And so I became steeped in the science of everything from health to food. And soon I began to navigate my way through the spheres of parenting influence. So I wanted to help others out of their darknesses too. So my interest in science and love of writing came together as action. So I'd found solace in the skeptics movement, and I began blogging to counter the fear and myths that were so pervasive in the parenting world. I got into it because it had been such a challenge for me to figure out what was actually worth worrying about. Um, Like I said, as a parent and a woman, but also as a child of immigrants, as a person who holds the values that I hold, And there was clearly a need to help others do the same, to figure out what to worry about um, in terms of safety, but also in regard to shared values. Excuse me. So in the first couple of years, I dove into parenting-related topics, and some of them are listed here, um, mental health, pregnancy and birth, infant feeding, food and agriculture, um, GMOs, of course, was a big one, chemicals, cancers, alternative medicine, and more. So by 2015, I had been an active writer for a couple of years when my relationship with the Center for Inquiry started. So I was drawn to the skeptics movement by its ethos of democratizing the pursuit of the bald-faced truth. So as I wrote in Undark, Carl Sagan didn't just give us cosmos. Uh, He also co-founded the organization now known as the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. And in doing so, he helped launch the contemporary skeptics movement. And I say helped launch because I'm fully aware of the rich history of skeptics around the world. And skeptics had been doing what they were doing for decades before, depending on when we want to um, define the beginning of the global contemporary skeptics movement. But anyhow, what I valued, um, and as Sagan often put it, is that it was a movement that views science not just as a body of knowledge, but as a way of thinking. 
Now, a little bit about CSI or the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. Um, they published the Skeptical Inquirer, which is the magazine for science and reason. And it was founded in 1976 with a mission to, its current mission actually, is to promote scientific inquiry, critical investigation, and the use of reason in examining controversial and extraordinary claims. Okay. And the Center for Inquiry is the parent organization of CSI. It was founded in 1991 as an umbrella organization to bring together CSI and the Council for Secular Humanism. Its current mission is uh, that the Center for Inquiry strives to foster a secular society based on reason, science, freedom of inquiry, and humanist values. And its vision is a world in which evidence, science, and compassion, rather than superstition, pseudoscience, or prejudice, guide public policy. Um, that all sounds good to me um, on its surface. They are a self-styled house of environment. And in 2016, CFI merged with the Richard Dawkins Foundation, bringing on Richard Dawkins as a board member and RDF's director as CFI's new CEO. And I'm certainly not the first uh, to criticize CFI for its indifference to matters of race, diversity, and social justice. Um, and as I wrote in my Undark essay, that indifference is reflected in its demographics. So prior to that essay, its 10-member board of directors included just one non-white person and two women. Now, what I'm sharing with you all today is as much a story about how some of us in the world of science, um, that includes public scientists and researchers, private sector scientists, writers, journalists, marketers, science advocate types, and skeptics, um, why don't we call them science people for the purpose of my talk today, um, they or we have a trajectory that looks something like this. And if you're not someone who gets my humor, um, beware that this is a bit tongue in cheek and also self-deprecating, but nevertheless, it's not inaccurate. So uh, the first part of that trajectory is that we're taught that science is infallible and apolitical. And then step two, we rally a bit of, uh, around this, uh, Science doesn't care what you believe is a popular refrain, as is citation needed. Then step three, those who really care about evidence-based worldviews are like, wait, science isn't apolitical? It's, I, I was wrong. I was being scientific. What, scientistic, excuse me, scientistic. What have I done? Now, plenty of people, I say, get stuck at step one almost ideologically stuck in some cases, and they never move past it. And some of them leave paths of ego-driven upheaval behind them, not only in scientific communities, but in the actual body of science. There are so many examples of this um, that I can't get into right now because I don't have enough time. But um, anyhow, in 2015, I was around a 1.1 on this trajectory. And as I would argue that they've shown in the past, CSI is among those still stuck around a one point something on this rough trajectory. And as I've gathered, they have a tendency to draw others at a one something stage into the fold. 
Um, I have to apologize for this slide and for a handful of text-heavy slides today. You'll have to forgive me since I wrote this talk just for skeptics in the pub, and it's my first time sharing this story so extensively, so please bear with me. So in 2016, I spoke at my first SciCon. That's the annual conference that's been held in Las Vegas for the last several years, and some of you may have attended in the past. And that's when they began sort of pursuing me to start writing for Skeptical Inquirer. That year at SciCon in 2016 was also the first time that I brought the issue of lack of diversity to CSI's executive director. In fact, I sat down with him at the SciCon Halloween party in Las Vegas, and I told him that I was having a nice experience, but asked if I could please talk to him about the overwhelmingly beige and relatively elderly demographic. He seemed deflated about the whole thing and said that he tries and that he's been alerted to this before. And I explained that I was fully aware that this was the case, and I gently asked him to please try harder. Anyhow, by 2018, I'd come to the third step of that science is infallible trajectory. Um, and I'm not sure that the leadership at CFI and CSI were aware of this evolution on my part, but that's also when I agreed to start writing a Skeptical Inquirer column. So shortly thereafter, the CSI executive director, ostensibly with the blessing of CFI's CEO, asked if I would be interested in hosting their podcast, Point of Inquiry. So at this point, I highly suspected that they thought I was still a one-something on that trajectory that I mentioned. And I was uneasy, but I decided to accept this gig because for one, I hoped that they had learned something in the last many years of receiving pretty thorough criticism. And second, I figured that this gives me the opportunity to expose skeptics to issues that we really need exposure to. But that year at SciCon in October 2018, my heart absolutely sank at, um, at what had happened, which I'll, I'll explain in a moment. But I realized sort of that after all of these years of bringing these glaring problems to CFI uh, and their leadership, they were still being almost aggressively ignorant. And at this point, I'd started writing for various outlets and speaking at events for other audiences. And I realized that given the privilege of being a financially secure freelancer on my spouse's health insurance, I was in the relatively safe position to start speaking out publicly. And so that's what I did. So a bit more detail about what went down that year in conversations with Richard Dawkins and Stephen Fry. So Stephen Fry was the recipient of the Richard Dawkins Award for that year. And really, it's beyond me why they allow unscripted nonsense from Dawkins. And I honestly wasn't surprised at what happened, though I was particularly disturbed. So anyway, I was sitting in the audience towards the back, and I was tired and not paying much attention uh, because I was tired. I'd given a talk on the stage the previous day. I had recorded several points of inquiry interviews live from Vegas, and I was preparing to fly to Washington, D.C., straight from Las Vegas, to go to the big national annual conference of the nutrition and dietetics fields to give a presentation for a panel on clean eating. And clean eating is uh, 
quite a complex thing. So I, I wasn't paying attention, long story short. Um, but toward the end, after a long discussion between Fry and Dawkins on appreciate the, appreciating excuse me, the art and culture of religion while still rejecting the supernatural aspect, Dawkins began talking about the regressive left. And whenever I hear someone earnestly say regressive left, I know that some bigoted posturing is highly likely to follow. So I'm going to go ahead and read a bit verbatim from the transcript of the conversation. So Dawkins begins, You said, Stephen, that the catastrophe of Trump and Brexit is less a triumph of the right than a failure of the left. Yes, Fry replies. Dawkins asks, Do you recognize the phrase regressive left? Fry says, Yes, I've come across it. Yeah. So so Dawkins uh, kind of digs a little more. He says, do you have a view on that? And Fry, did he ever have a review? Uh, a view? So he says, this is a, a little bit lengthy, but I, I'll read it. He says, there's a part of me that just wants to be mischievous and say, look, this Grand Canyon, um, and we were in Vegas, so we were near the Grand Canyon. He says, this Grand Canyon has opened up in America and really across the world, certainly around the developed world, the chattering world, if you like, and it's getting wider every day. Therefore, people on each side of the divide, they have to shout louder and gesticulate more horribly to be heard by the other side. And they are not being heard by the other side. And they are just making noises and screaming and hating each other deeply and thinking the other vile and destructive and inhuman. And I like to think of myself, Fry says, I like to think of myself and right-thinking people as cowering in the ravine at the bottom, unsure what to do. Because on the one hand, you have a nativist alt-right bringing up all kinds of nasty, unacceptable, and horrifying racist thoughts and divisions. But you also have a preposterous, illiberal, liberal left shouting out these jargonistic nonsense from the university. And now by this time, at least in my view, his voice is dripping with ridicule or maybe contempt. And he says, if I have to hear about the patriarchy and cisgender white privilege, blah, blah, blah. And he starts waving his hands as if uh, in disgust, in disgust, excuse me. And so that's when I walked out the door and tweeted my views. Now, I had initially heard um, that he uh, I had initially heard him say uh, cishet privilege, but later, looking back at the video and the transcript, what he said was cis white privilege. But either way, that's when I walked out the door and tweeted my views, because clearly uh, cis het privilege and white privilege, as well as the patriarchy, whatever you want to call them, are very data and evidence clad phenomena. So as I mentioned in the previous uh, timeline slide, I requested... Uh, there we go. I requested a call with CFI CEO and CSI's executive director. And that phone call exposed so much more of the underbelly than I had already seen. Um, it was it was quite a long call, around an hour. And I'll describe a couple of bits of it. And I'm going to paraphrase. 
But um, the CEO on the call suggested that people cannot talk about social justice, especially race and racism, without getting too emotional. And uh, she definitely said too emotional. And this is kind of something that she likes to say. Uh, She's quite a outspoken person. So I will allow you to do your own reading on her views. So, okay, she tells me that people can't talk about race without getting too emotional, uh, which I didn't understand why she was so vehemently uh, almost angry about this emotion about race. So I decided I was going to be constructive. So I made a few suggestions that I thought that CFI and CSI should take seriously. And one of those suggestions uh, was for CSI and CFI to invite a speaker every year to SICON from a formerly colonized country. And the CEO seemed very confused and asked me to clarify what I meant by a formerly colonized country. And so I explained, you know, formerly colonized countries, and I began naming some of them. Um, and she, she interrupted me to, to suggest that um, this wasn't a good idea because CFI w- shouldn't uh, give their platform to people to air their grievances. And, I, and she said, air their grievances. And so I was really taken aback. And I said, listen, what I meant was that you... Uh, you invite people from foreign, formerly colonized countries, excuse me, known for their contributions to science or skepticism or secularism, um, and you ask them to talk about their area of expertise. Um, but anyhow, it it was an unnerving conversation. So um, the rest of the timeline, I promise this will be the last very text-heavy slide, Um But after that, I had a few conversations with respected and trusted colleagues and decided how to proceed because I got the idea from the call that um, she expected me to sort of toe the party line going forward. And I didn't really have any intention of doing that, but um, uh, I continued writing my column and decided to go ahead and post point of inquiry. And I continued calling out bad behavior. And then in 2019, the sense that I was being tokenized reached a, a breaking point. I spoke at my final PsyCon that year and remarks that Dawkins made on stage that year um, about how he couldn't possibly be stoking um, racist in Islamophobia because um, as, his, as his logic goes, as his reasoning goes, um, you... Islamophobia isn't a thing and uh, criticizing Islam can never be racist because Islam is not a race. Uh, It's just completely nonsensical. And I can say that from experience as someone who um, I have many Muslim friends, but I've never been Muslim a day in my life. Uh, Yet somehow I get uh, Islamophobic comments from people just walking around, especially in the in the aughts, but it still happens. So clearly, his his 
reasoning is just, it's not even, it's not sound. I don't understand the respect for this person. But I was left physically shaking because it's it's quite um, disturbing to me to see someone make remarks on that stage in this way. So anyhow, in October 2019, I received the letter from CFI parting ways with me. And by February 2020, Undark had published my essay, The Skeptics Movement Can't Afford to Ignore Racial Inequality. And so days later, all of my writing and podcast episodes were removed from the website. In April, they began receiving complaints from, it seems, prominent enough skeptics about this erasure. So um, in an attempt, I think, to appease those who complained, they restored my work. But they began circulating a web page memo and um, what seemed like an attempt to denigrate me. So now we will get to the part that I promised, uh, the lessons. What can we learn as skeptics about white supremacy from all of this? So now I hope I've set the scene and we'll get to the real meat of what CSI can teach us. But none of these lessons are new and I'm only conveying them through my lens of experience. And they are new, I guess, in the sense that um, many people in the skeptics community haven't learned them. So uh, the first lesson, white supremacy is not its caricature. Ibram X. Kendi is an American author, historian, and uh, a scholar of race and discriminatory policy in the U.S. And he often says the heartbeat of racism is denial, and the sound of that heartbeat is uh, not racist. So this caricature of white supremacy and white supremacists as um a MAGA hat wearing, tiki torch wielding, um, swastika sporting uh, sort of redneck, uh, it's, it serves the status quo. You see how these two people, uh, children, I guess, walking say, ever notice how white supremacists are their own counter argument? And I, I understand the humor in this, but it, it allows those who see ourselves as intelligent and good and reasonable people to remove ourselves from the picture and from becoming part of the solution. So white supremacy is a uh, system and white supremacists are simply those who uphold that system. So if you remove the notion that people who are reasonable, good people and not racist have nothing to do with white supremacy, and begin to see white supremacy for what it is, which is a system that elevates whiteness for no other reason than elevating whiteness uh, and, and the history of that, then we can begin to explore how well-intentioned people who consider themselves good and not racist nevertheless uphold the status quo. So that's when it becomes clear that there is no such thing as not racist. There is only anti-racist or racist. So that's right. Staying out of the racist category, it takes a little bit of work. And I'm certainly not here to pass judgment on anyone who hasn't yet done that work. When you know better, you do better after all. I love that gif, the more you know. It's very quintessential American thing. But I do say that anyone claiming to be a skeptic who hasn't done that learning should go ahead and get to it. And now here you see on the slide the flyer from 2016. Um, at the time, I had 
an uneasy feeling that I was being tokenized. And that feeling would later crystallize to unavoidable, blatant tokenization. Now, this also brings to mind the problem with colorblind phila uh, philanthropy. There's been a lot of solid critique of philanthropy and nonprofits, and among that is this critique of colorblind philanthropy. So last September, CFI announced that the newest member of its board, at that time the 10th member, would be yet another white person. I have nothing against this person, but as one board member later conveyed, it seems that they didn't do an active search for a 10th board member, but they brought this person on because someone had lobbied for her addition. So I was disappointed, and I reached out to one board member whom I'd regularly interacted with, um, and this was via Facebook Messenger, and I asked him, you elected another white person to the board? Really? And his reply was, yep. Finding people that want to serve on the board and have the appropriate qualifications isn't easy. So that's why I wrote in um, on Dark that him dismissing the board's overwhelming whiteness as a function of qualifications is far easier than grappling with their race problem. But the most disturbing truths aren't supposed to be easy to contend with. And I really have no reservations in saying that this is the kind of not racist crap that upholds white supremacy. So that leads me to my next lesson, which is impatience is a totally rational approach to white supremacy. Um, as I explained in Undark, CFI's 2019 merger with the charitable foundation uh, led by Dawkins, RDF, um, he repeatedly has come under fire for Islamophobic and misogynistic remarks, which did little to burnish its reputation. And further, as author Sakivu Hutchinson put in a 2018 essay about the merger, quote, CFI's all-white board looks right at home with the Dawkins Foundation's lily-white board and staff. So another board member who I approached about um, this decision uh, wrote to me, adding board members isn't a competition. It's a process, usually a slow one. And making progress on diversity is a good thing, even if the diversity is not in the particular dimension you want. Ostensibly, he was talking about the fact that this person um, is a woman. Now, I won't go through all of the text on this slide here, but I um, decided to juxtapose what he said with um, with Martin Luther King's comments on um, timing and patience and waiting. This wait has almost always meant never, he wrote. And so um, the, this cartoon here is also a good one based on uh, a post called How to Ally by, uh, by an influencer known as Waste Free Marie. And I also really liked this illustration, so I included it, it in the slide there for you. But since we're running a little low on time, I'll go to the next lesson, which is that religion is not the primary driver of white supremacy. It's the purveyors of so-called reason and rationality and science. I observed this clearly from the people in leadership at CFI and CSI. And again, these are among the most visible skeptical and humanist organizations in America. And they seem to truly and genuinely believe that they are the ones in possession of reason and science. But their intentions aside, they've effectively 
tried their utmost to deflect blame for the atrocities of racism, all while upholding their own literal white supremacy among their ranks. I don't know how else to put it. And this isn't, of course, just an issue with CFI and CSI. I quote uh, Angela Saini here in this slide from The Return of Race Science from the prologue. And this statement really struck me. She writes, throughout, white thinkers told us that their culture was better, that they were the proprietors of thought and reason. And they married this with the notion that they belonged to superior races. These became our realities. The truth is something else. Um, And I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to interview Angela about uh, superior for point of inquiry. So I've included that in, um, in a link in the slide as well. And now this image on the right of this slide uh, of Hitler and um, the Crusades, this this imagery here, bless the heart of the the person who put together this graphic and quotes himself from a a book that he wrote. Um, This person is a a sort of well-known secular uh, and skeptical activist in in the U.S., and he also has founded a political party. But anyhow, he had posted this on Facebook about how um, kind of suggesting that um, that white supremacy comes from religion and religion is to blame. And so I actually uh, explained to him how this was problematic and he's going to be doing some reading. So that's great. The next lesson is that social justice has everything to do with science. So there's this pervasive idea in the skeptics movement that social justice is political and science is apolitical and thus social science doesn't have anything to do with science. And that's not true. The endeavor of science has always been a product of the people who do it. And that has historically been white men. And this has had gargantuan influence to this day, as I know that many of you in the audience uh, are already aware But anyone purporting to care about scientific inquiry, critical investigation, and the use of reason in examining controversial and extraordinary claims must orient themselves around social justice. And yet another another lesson, the caricature of, uh, of the blithering SJW is a straw man which I think has been concocted by status quo warriors. Like when when I write about the problem of the patriarchy leading to a lack of informed choice for mode of birth for birthing women, for example, excuse me, birthing people, which is leading to issues with our pelvic floors, that's not me gratuitously talking about my vagina and the vaginas of all the other birthing people experiencing injustice. I really did write about that, by the way. Some of you may have read the reported essay I wrote for Self Magazine. It is called Giving Birth Made Me Question the Informed Consent Process During Childbirth. Or when someone like me says trans black lives matter or black lives matter, it's not just SJW fluff buzzwords. It's based on real, actual data and science. And I would like to add, um, 
and and Alice supports me on this, that I will always and forever talk about my vagina. It has not only survived what it's been through, I have to say it has thrived. And for fans of the movie 13 going on 30, there might be one, one or two. You'll have to let me know. But for you, I will even say that my vagina is 37, flirty seven, and thriving. I had to tell you this. So anyone who claims to be a skeptic ought to discard the notion that people who care about social justice are driven by irrational emotion and unreason. Now, another lesson is that lip service to racism does not, again, render an entity not racist. So this issue of skeptical inquirer that that you've seen on the slides here a couple times uh, was a special issue uh, that was published about two years ago. And as I wrote, it was published in an inept address to address race. The issue, penned exclusively by white men, note, demonstrated CFI leadership's woefully shallow grasp of how racism works. In an article on critical thinking approaches to confronting racism, the magazine's deputy editor referenced the view of evolutionary psychologist and author Steven Pinker that the overall historical trends for humanity are encouraging. And that's a view that's been criticized as glossing over the plights of the most marginalized people. The uh, deputy editor's contribution to the special issue also seemed to ignore the elephant in CFI's room. He made not even a passing mention of the staggering racial disparities within his own organization and within the very pages of the publication he was writing for. Um, And I'm not saying that the issue was all trash. Uh, I mean, there were some interesting bits in it, but I would say the one piece with any valuable depth uh, and that featured the perspective of a non-white researcher was um, by a white author named Sam Scott who did an interview with Jennifer Eberhardt, who's a psychologist um, and researcher studying racial bias at Stanford. And a side note, the funny thing was that by all measures, it seems as if this piece was passed off as reported and written for this skeptical inquirer issue, whereas it had actually been published in Stanford Magazine in 2015. But anyway, moving on, yeah, cool, uh, Go ahead and use a stock photo of a black person for your cover as if you actually care what black people say. Another lesson is that erasure, hypocrisy, and demonizing the messenger are quintessential reactions to those who confront white supremacy and um, and who confront other unequal power structures. For four years, I was CFI's most public-facing non-white associate um, among a mere handful or less of non-white people who worked for or with CFI. And as I uh, said earlier, days after my Undark, excuse me, after Undark ran my essay, CFI retaliated by removing all of my work from its website. So the hypocrisy in this situation is that CFI and CSI's leadership, especially the CEO, like to call themselves free speech purists. And um, I mean, they say this on a regular basis. The deleted content included articles on quack autism cures, spurious spurious 
spurious birth practices, um, infant feeding, alternative medicine, pesticides, and um, and podcast interviews on everything from MSG to OCD to the resurgence of race science. So soon CFI began receiving complaints about this erasure. So in an apparent attempt to appease those who complained, they restored my work, which was great. And that could have been the end of it and should have been the end of it. But then they also began circulating um, this webpage memo on a dangling link that uh, you have to have the URL to in order to see. Um, And they circulated this in a seeming attempt to denigrate me and to do their very best to explain how not racist they are. So in this memo, they quote extensively from my own postings as if my words are evidence of how irresponsible I am to criticize them. And really the quotes sort of speak for themselves. Like for an instance, in this appendix, they quote from some of my work and social media postings. Uh, So one piece of evidence purportedly (laughs) about how nobody should listen to Coven reads March 20th, 2020, I I wrote, referring, or they write, referring to CFI, quoting me, the textbook institutional white supremacy is almost surreal. Well, yeah, I did write that. And now I'm giving an entire skeptics in the pub talk about it. So I just like, what's your point? Uh, I have asked them what the point is, by the way, and they haven't told me, which I think is quite rude. So I won't go through this whole strange memo right now, but you can read about it in the blog linked um, in this slide. So like I said, I didn't ask to be part of this narrative. But another lesson that really is just a universal lesson from everybody is that actions are more important than words. So in this memo, again, about me, they say that my public denunciations of CFI and its leaders, borne out by comments appended to the letter, Defy all evidence to the contrary. CFI values and practices are in fact consistent with our mission. They oppose white supremacy, they say. They've used their platform to expose fallacies and dangers of racial prejudice and that they're committed to diversity. They also write that they already work alongside a vast array of paid professional and lay leaders of all races and ethnicities. Just don't call your your so-called diversity a vast array. I mean, I don't know. But anyhow, I can unequivocally share with you all that the Center for Inquiry Leadership have rejected uh, multiple generous and well-referenced attempts to convince them to take the basic step of, um, of adopting a formal diversity, equity, and inclusion policy. Um, I actually read one such thorough proposal that Fed Up staff earnestly put together, uh, and it was quite extensive. But evidently, this would be part of the so-called mission creep that they bandy about as uh, a flimsy excuse, really. So if racism is among the most pressing pseudoscientific threats of our time, which it is, and if CSI cares about pseudoscience, which they claim to, then what's going on? Well, as much as folks like me had hoped that its leadership would pull its head out of the sand after all these years, they haven't started walking the talk. Even after Black Lives Matter has become a mainstream uh, international revolution, which I think by all measures is 
moving into the Overton window, if not solidly there, and institutions left and right, including scientific and secular uh, organizations, are adopting policy to center equity and inclusion, all CFI issued was a sort of lukewarm statement in which they write that the Center for Inquiry categorically opposes abusive policing and racism, supports the position that Black Lives Matter, and finds that ongoing attempts to dehumanize African Americans demonstrates that society is still mired in a most unfortunate state of intellectual and moral infancy. Well, I think that this perhaps most visible humanist and skeptical organization in America should have a look at its own unfortunate state of intellectual and moral infancy. So I had a look at the CFI website and recent issues of Skeptical Inquirer, and nope, they haven't seemed to have had that look in the mirror as of a couple days ago. So there are a few compelling pieces here and there for sure, but it's mostly more of the usual ghosts and debunkery and low-hanging skeptical fruit. So one piece in in particular struck me as glaringly bad. It's by a longtime white male CFI associate and research fellow. And this piece is called, I kid you not, can I oppose waterboarding if I've never been waterboarded? Yeah, that's what it's called. And I mean, I've never been waterboarded and I oppose waterboarding myself, but it just isn't a sound analogy for almost anything else. Alas, this piece goes ahead and tries. So I'll read a short excerpt. Uh, I'm, I'm wrapping up, I promise. Similar reasoning applies to the contention that some issues should be reserved for authors from certain groups. There are few living authors who have been slaves themselves, and historically, slavery has been experienced by every human ethnic group at one time or another. Slavery is part of our universal human heritage. The second context, um, where there is a discussion about various harms disproportionately endured by minority or marginalized groups, and the measures needed to address these harms. Here, the mantra for the past decade at least has been shut up and listen, with this instruction usually being directed to whites, males, or white males. So clearly, this white man feels very victimized at not being able to write about police brutality. It's very nice of CFI to provide a safe space for him. So... uh, One of the last lessons is that diversity without inclusion is exclusion. This tweet really encompasses the problem with institutions across America and globally, and that's what's been happening at CSI and CFI. Granted, after years of work uh, by others to push them in the right direction and directly following my most recent criticisms, they added a couple more non-white board members, which is great but I see no evidence that they've sought authentic direction from those members. In other words, they've done this to enhance the boutique experience of white members. Interrogating and grappling with mistakes is necessary for all institutions and individuals. So white people globally are having a film removed from their eyes, or people in general, not just white people, Or so this narrative has been going since BLM became a mainstream international movement. But, I mean, it's great that Tina Fey is pulling episodes of 30 Rock in which characters appear in blackface. Um, 
but still white people suddenly seeing black people as human um, is not good. Like we, Tina Fey had to have known earlier. Um, And then this other is a screenshot from a statement from a real estate company um, that my, actually the realtor uh, who helped us buy our home many years ago works for this company. And they themselves are saying that real estate has played an insidious role in institutionalized racism and needs reform. So uh, Ibram X. Kendi says that the heartbeat of anti-racism is confession. And there's nothing self-flagellating about making confessions when we're wrong. All of us should confess to ourselves at the very least, to our peers, about our learning experiences so others may do the same. I mean, one of my confessions is that I, several years ago, didn't understand why TERFs were totally just wrong. For those of you who aren't aware of the term TERF, it's T-E-R-F. It stands for Trans-Exclusionary Radical Feminist. The new term is FART. That stands for Feminist Appropriating uh, Radical Transphobes. And, um, but I learned and I should tell you, I'm actually related by marriage to one of the most famous turfs in the world, actually famous farts, and it's not J.K. Rowling. But anyhow, I'm going to skip this lesson about skeptical pedantry. Uh, maybe I'll bring it up during the Zoom conference, um, but I'd like to move right along to the final lesson. And that is that skeptics need to center social justice if we're ever going to combat misinformation when it comes to the issues that we care about. So as I wrote in on Dark, I still believe that the skeptics movement can be a force against white supremacy um, and that questions pertaining to race shouldn't be an exception to the rules that we normally hold ourselves to. If skeptics refuse to contextualize issues in terms of race and other demographics, it will only hinder our efforts to address other forms of pseudoscience. So to wrap up, I was drawn to the skeptics movement because I liked the idea of democratizing the pursuit of the bald-faced truth. And I wanted to know what I need to worry about as a parent, as a woman, but also as a daughter of immigrants, as someone who values equality and the scientific method. So now when we center the fact that race is pseudoscientific and a social construct and center the fact that people of color and um, black people in particular in America deal with race-based discrimination across all of society, um, from higher infant and maternal mator- mortality rates um, to subpar treatment by doctors and educators and housing authorities, all the way to policing, we need to we need to center this. So I do still have a lot of hope for the skeptics movement. That's why I'm here today, imploring you all to listen and to learn. And if you're white, to please collect the so-called not racist skeptics and do the work to expose them to, well, the bald-faced truth. So thank you. So welcome back, everybody. Um, And if you'd like to welcome back uh, Coven's Nopathy back to your screens, and we'll start going through some of the questions that we've had through at sly.do forward slash Coven. 
Don't forget, you can continue asking your questions there, continue upvoting, um, and we'll get to as many questions as we can in the next little space of time. Um, so we'll start off with the, uh, the question from David Drummer, who asked, um, what are the first steps you'd suggest for someone who wants to examine their own position with regard to racism issues? Um, that's, that's a hard question. It, it took me a, f- a few years, I would think, to really thoroughly examine my own position with regard um, to not only racism issues, but um, gender discrimination and so many other things. So I would I would suggest uh, going with the form of media that uh, that sort of speaks to you. Just make sure it's evidence based stuff. And since I'm talking to mostly a skeptical audience. Um, I, I think you, I hope that you know what I mean. Uh, one thing that comes to mind for Americans who are who are on the um, or at skeptics in the pub today, or maybe even global folks, is the, there's this music video that I really like that just came out. It's by the Chicks, formerly known as the Dixie Chicks, and they changed their name because of the uh, connection of the word Dixie with um, the the Confederate states. And the video is called March March, and uh, it's just a, a gripping and powerful video. And at the end, they uh, and also in the in the video notes on YouTube, they include quite a few resources on how to um, uh, how to start in your journey with anti-racism, and um, they're all pretty sound. I, I did take a look at those, so do watch the video by the chicks. Okay, so um, the next question we have is from Dave, who asked, um, having spoken at both UK and American conferences. What do you see as the biggest differences? Um, so I, I think he means UK and American skeptic conferences. Uh, and I've also spoken at um, the European Council of Skeptical Organizations conference, which was in um, in Ghent, Belgium recently. Has it been a couple of years now? Okay, anyway, um, I, I believe that... American conferences, SciCon in particular, um, they tend to have more of a sort of hierarchy or celebrity, that um, they overvalue celebrity in the skeptics movement. Um, so there kind of becomes this, this rift between so-called VIPs and just us regular skeptics. Um, and I think that UK conferences, especially QED, which is the cream of the, the skeptical conference crap does that really well, brings people together and really makes it um, an environment where rich uh, and open discourse can happen while uh, remaining respectful and kind. Now, I can't speak for all American skeptical uh, conferences. I haven't been to Nexus uh I will say that Skepticon is a lovely American conference and the registration is also free and I've spoken at Skepticon and I, I thought that was also um, a wonderful environment. Excellent. Um, so we have an, on, an anonymous question who, um, and they asked, how do we combat the idea, particularly among the skeptic community, that social sciences are not real science? Well, um, I mean, this is a, a huge 
question um, and matter of conversation, of course, among skeptics. So I certainly uh, don't purport to have that answer because uh, it's still an idea that has to be combated, which I wish it didn't have to be combated. But the short answer is really like, stop saying that. <laughs> That's about it. No, it definitely seems to be the case that that yeah. skeptics are are prone to to looking down on on yeah. some things and and social sciences might be one right. of those things that we could we could do a bit better at um marianne asked what do you think are useful methods for white people trying to be anti-racist to support people speaking up about racist racism in these organizations for example letters or public action yeah um i think it it depends on the organization um it, it depends on the leader, kind of which generation, I suppose, the leadership is from. So CFI and CSI, for their part, um, they don't tend to pay attention to Twitter, but I still think Twitter is useful for raising awareness about these issues. Um, They seem to pay a little more attention to Facebook, but direct emails and letters are meaningful and public action to the point where... um, where it also spurs uh, people to write letters and speak up directly to the leadership, whether it be, let I, I think, letter to the board of directors, for example, um, are within perfectly reasonable courses of action to take with this organization. Um, but I think other useful methods, especially in the um, in the skeptical movement, is to kind of stop giving the benefit of the doubt to bad faith views, bad faith arguments, and sea lions. And if you don't know what sea lions are, you can look it up and you'll find out. I'm sure some of our mods will be able to share a link in the chat if people are interested (laughs) in the definition. Um, Cool. So Matt asked, um, given your experiences, if you could start again, would you join CSI again? And if so, would you do anything differently within the organization? Um, given what I know now, I mean, I guess I can't, what, what I've gone through, I've already gone through. I I guess I certainly, um, would not join again if it's asked, you know, if somehow they claimed that they were (laughs) sorry and they would really value my input about pseudoscience and things because I, I did quite good work for them. And I think I have, they have a few gaps in that regard, but, um, I wouldn't join CSI again now, barring some sort of very unlikely um, actions. Um, But if I could start again, uh, I I would join CSI again, you know, back when I did. Because as I said, I, I am now able to say that I spent a few years doing my very best and kind of exercising my privilege and using my energy to try to push them in the right direction. Now, of course, some of that was um, not necessarily productive, but I think the ultimate outcome is is still a good thing. Uh, I, I, have, um, I have several relationships with people that I respect a whole lot who are still with CSI and CFI and some who have moved on. And um, I, I really value those. And I think that... Um, these relationships will continue. So I'm, I'm glad for that. 
Okay, we've got a question from Gerald who asks, um, subjects of interest to you in your role as a mother drew you to scepticism. Should sceptical organisations try to reach more women by occupying these subjects? Do you think maybe we we don't do a good enough job at that? Well, um, I think some sceptical organisations uh, do, do really well at reaching parents in general. Uh, again, QED comes to mind because at QED, you can bring your kids and they have, um, oh, I'm, I'm forgetting the word that you use them, you use there for the little, the the, like a daycare. Yeah, the crush, the crush. <laughs> so American of me to forget. Uh, but I think those kinds of accessibility things for parents are very, uh, very important. But um, I think skeptical organizations would reach not only women, but uh, more young people, more um, people from from all different kinds of backgrounds. If we just like came one step out from kind of our skeptical um, bubble of, of how we think about things. And I think Claire Klingenberg puts put this well in um, in a podcast interview I did with her for Point of Inquiry. Um, and I, I got a paraphrase here, but um, like we're all not mean. So if we just started, you know, acting like regular people and not hiding things that are maybe guilty pleasures about us, um, you know, sometimes I eat organic. Sometimes I um, I've been using a CBD ointment even though I know it's a total placebo effect, but whatever, we can't be skeptical, skeptical about everything all the time. And um, that's okay. It's just, it's a goal that we set for ourselves at times. I don't know, I'm rambling here, but I think you get the point. <laughs> try and be a bit more human and try and yeah. reach people yeah. on the level that they're at, that we're all fallible, we all make mistakes, we all like what we like, whether it's evidence-based yeah. or not sometimes. I think it should be less, um, again, bringing more women and more people and younger people into the into the fold. It should be less about looking up to leaders of any sort or people that, you know, people that we somehow assume are infallible and really being com- uh, think about being a community and keeping each other in check um, and being okay with that. So we've got a question from William who asked, um, what suggestions would you offer to boards of SciComm or skeptical organizations who've struggled to find diverse recruits who are willing and enthusiastic to join? Um, well, I'm not an expert in this whatsoever in terms of how to actually draw um, diverse members and um and associates. Um, but for one, I mean, don't have Richard Dawkins on your stage. <laughs> like, as much as you think he's very cool, like, he's not. <laughs> but but really, I think that um, boards of organizations that have the resources um, should really budget for, um, for expertise on how to draw, uh, how to center anti-racism, how to center uh, anti-other kinds of bigotry, and how to really create change from within and not just make surface level um, statements that you're not going to follow through with. Which that, I guess, talks to big organizations like CSI and CFI, but... Yeah, um, right. For, for the organizations like ours... Uh, like Psy Moms or something that I do or um, skeptical organizations, you know, do your best to 
make space for um, make space for diversity and um, and really try to I think uh, what's what am I trying to say? Make space for diversity, but also just kind of enable people as as much as possible. Like we all skeptics skeptics often have so much going on, and um, a lot of skeptics do what they do uh, their outreach uh, as volunteers, and so it really needs to be an attractive proposition to put in that kind of work. Cool. So Dale asked, um, how do you approach those who respond to those who take action and speak out by making accusations of them being a troublemaker, irrational, or even extremist? And I think you touched on this a little bit by saying you've been told that people talking about race might be a bit too emotional or, or you know, problematic in some way. Well, um, I, I think it's a great question, but I think this this question itself sort of touches on uh, touches the surface of latent phenomena, right? So every time there's somebody like me, like I said, I um, I had almost calculated that I would be safe in speaking out in these ways um, in terms of my own livelihood and my own family. But for every person like me who does take action and does speak out by making, um, uh, and they make accusations of them being a troublemaker or irrational or extremist, there are a slew of other people who are not in positions to speak up publicly and who are probably doing just as much and if not more real work um, to create change. And so I think that... Um, People like, for example, skeptics in the pub showing someone like me support and giving me space to explain the lessons that I've learned, I hope can go a long way in um, in motivating everyone else who's really doing um, the hard work and what they need to do and in also making them feel that maybe perhaps there is a, a net that will catch them. Excellent. And I think, yeah, the last couple of questions you've touched on, the most important thing seems to be diversity. If you can represent as many different types of people as possible, then you're, you're doing something good in trying to help people either speak out, feel supported or or just see their face, you know, somebody who represents them and feel like they're part of this community that, that we're all part of. Um, Annika asked, uh, what kind? What can the sceptical movement as a whole do to improve? What would you recommend as the first steps and then the further steps? Oh, uh, well, uh, what can, I'm, I'm looking at the, the question. What would be the first steps? In the, well, uh, there, there are so many people in the sceptical movement doing good work. And I'm not saying to to uh, look up to them as heroes, but to perhaps learn from them and um, uh, listen to their advice. So um, one example, again, a little bit of self-promotion, is to listen to the Point of Inquiry episode in which I interview Claire Klingenberg. We actually talked about um, a few steps that people can take, but one of the big ones is to just start to understand that um, skepticism isn't apolitical, uh, and I mentioned this a couple times, um, as much as you want it to be. And so uh, once we start realizing that, we start realizing that really um, 
almost almost anything, any issue or any question is within the purview of of skeptical inquiry, and there's nothing that should sort of be siloed out of it. So um, I believe that expanding our view in that regard uh, would be a, a good general step. Okay, we've got a question from Paul who says, um, I know correlation isn't necessarily causation, but did the current problems you identify in CFI come to light after the merger with the Richard Dawkins Foundation? Um, I'm not sure what you mean by come to light, if you mean in terms of come to light publicly. Um, but there, no, there has there have been problems before the, the merger with the Richard Dawkins Foundation. But I think certainly that merger catalyzed some of those problems um, bubbling to the surface. And Andrew asks, could you explain the differences between those three stages that you talked about and they didn't fully understand how, what it means to move through the different stages and why we would want to move through those different stages? Yeah, yeah. Actually, again, I'm, I'm so sorry for referring people to my work, but I hate kind of re, uh, reinventing those wheels. So I talk a little bit about them um, in my interview with two of the scientists from Science for the People. You can also find that on the Point of Inquiry website. But um, if I have a moment, let me just go back to that slide and I'll kind of touch on it for a second. <clears throat> the three, ah, oh, yes. So um, if you recall that slide, there is a, a cartoon of me with a sword that says science. And so um, the first step is this, this idea that science is infallible, it, that it is completely objective. Um, and even though in some sort of corner of my mind or the mind of people, I think, who generally get into the science world, you are trained to have a whole lot of confidence in what science tells us. But um, the more science you read uh, throughout the history of any given field uh, of science, the more you realize that, oh my God, there's so much of the individuals, uh, the researchers who did this work, like you, re you read it in their writing, like they're just, some of it is just opining and best guesses based on their um, own perspectives. Um, so once you realize this, then that's when you start understanding how the body of, of scientific literature, as well as a scientific community, are affected by these very human um, impulses. So one really good example, at least one that I like, if, uh, if I have time, it's one second, I jotted it down in case this question came up. Um, I mean, the opportunity to have a, a sip of my wine. A sip? <laughs> I have wine too, I might have a sip. Um, ah, yes. So I, uh, I learned about this when I was uh, working on an assignment about why women, um, women or uh, it, 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 there's also research on non-binary non people, but why women uh, have much higher incidence of autoimmune disease, which is a fact. So um, the Nobel winner and immunologist Paul Ehrlich, uh, he actually ended up uh, kind of delaying the study of autoimmunity by about 30 years because of what some people call Nobel disease. 
So he coined this term called horror autotoxicus. And this term uh, was basically meant to encompass the idea that um, it is unthinkably terrifying and horrible that uh, one's own immune system would turn on their own body and would turn on their own tissues. So um, he was so sure that the human body's immune system wouldn't turn on itself that he and um, and the the field of immunology actually rejected the idea that autoimmunity was real, even as evidence to the contrary was coming out. So this is one example of how, like, okay, this is how science actually works. And I mean, this is quite um, a fascinating and disturbing example when you think about like the current study of immunity and how maybe it would be helpful if we had 30 more years on it. But anyhow, there are, science is full of this. So um, that's at least how the evolution through these three steps has sort of worked for me Um that's very complicated. So <laughs> please do listen to that episode if you like podcasts. Um, so we've got a question from Simon who asked, um, and I think we've touched on this a little bit already. Do you have any suggestions for organizations that aren't culturally diverse on how to be welcoming? Um, as it's clearly hard on the initial recruits if they have to fix it, if you're responsible then for fixing it. And I guess you must feel this a little bit sometimes yourself if you're especially with CFI and CSI saying, I, I'm the only person of color that you're that you're working with, and it's on me to challenge you on this. That that must be quite challenging. It was. It was. Um, I don't like using the word crazy, but it was. It's almost crazy making. It's gaslighting to some uh, effect, and I, I really don't think that that's too extreme to say. I mean, just listen to people, acknowledge that they're giving you the opportunity, really, I think I was quite generous. And I really gave them quite a bit of um, solid information and uh, quite constructive suggestions. So if you're not going to do that, then yeah, your membership is going to look overwhelmingly beige and older. So we've, we said earlier, if you can try and enhance diversity and what you're representing. So for skeptics in the pub organizations, I guess that's booking speakers who who are from a diverse range of backgrounds you're going to make people feel more welcome just by by seeing representation on your stages for example and then once once you start getting people through into your membership you can support them and listen to them and let them find their own voice and and not gaslight them I guess as you say right right it's been very helpful to have really hundreds of people um come to me and say like listen what you're saying is totally legitimate and that's that's helpful because you know living honestly living as a brown person in America especially kid of immigrants for my whole life like you kind of stop realizing or you become um accustomed to having to educate people about your own humanity and the humanity of the people you love and yeah, like I decided that I'm not going to be used to that anymore. So I'm still going to do it, but I'm also going to point out that it's BS that I have to do it. And um, we have an anonymous question who asked how CSI and CFI are funded. Um, I think they're a nonprofit, right? Yeah, yeah. They're um, CFI is a nonprofit and it's the parent organization of CSI and the Council for Secular Humanism. So they're funded uh, prim- primarily by donations. They do have um, 
a quite a large budget for a nonprofit. I think it's in the handful of millions of dollars per year. So um, it's it's not industry funded or anything, if that's uh, what you were getting at. Um, we have another anonymous question who uh, said there's a lot of emotion behind words like racist and white supremacy. Um, are they essential to the conversation despite or even because of the emotion that they evoke? Um, and I think this links in with another question that that asked, is white supremacy quite a strong claim um, to use in this particular case? And maybe we could talk a bit about the definitions of those words and how how they've developed over time and changed over time. Right. So there is um, there is quite a bit of scholarship on this. But um, if you recall the slide in which I talk about the caricature, oops, looking for that the caricature of the white supremacist. Um, That caricature is certainly how that word was used um, for for so long and still is in many ways. Um, But I don't think that, uh, I'm looking at the question again, um, are they essential to the conversation despite or even because of the emotion they evoke? I mean, as... (laughs) As so many skeptics say, um, not that I agree with this, I think that emotion is an acceptable thing for us to go through when we address things that are hard for us to come to terms with. And so our emotion is never a reason to remove certain words from our terminology. Um, It is up to us to understand them and to, to deal with our emotions. Okay, so I think we'll make this our last question, but Claire Klingenberg, who you've you've mentioned a couple of times uh, today, um, she asked, can science in the current climate, uh, pun both intended and not, uh, ever be apolitical? Hey, it's Claire, my eulogy buddy. (laughs) We'll tell you that story sometime. I'm sure you'll hear it uh, next time you hang out with Claire. Uh, Can science in the current climate ever be apolitical? uh, I, I think no, it, it can't be apolitical. It isn't apolitical. And I really believe that the the push or the struggle for some people in the science world to hang on to this notion that science is apolitical is counterproductive. Um, again, you can hear more about that in the uh, the. Science for the People interview and in my interview with Claire. Fantastic. So I think we'll wrap up there. Please join me again in thanking Coven for an excellent, interesting and challenging talk. That was the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. For more sceptical content, including information about future talks, please like us on Facebook follow at SITP on Twitter or head to our website at sitp.online where you'll also find a link to all the ways you can get in touch with us, including our Discord server. Music in this episode was provided by Thula Bora and used with permission. Until next time, thanks for listening.